Everybody, thank you so much. Thanks for giving Pastor Paul a little break. Pastor Paul is in uh, vacation with his uh, family, visiting his mom and dad down in uh, Cocoa Beach, uh, Florida. And uh, he's going to be traveling back here hopefully tomorrow. And uh, so we'll get him uh, back with us. But we appreciate having Dan here today. Hey, let me uh, tell you where we're going over the balance of the year. We're going to put our uh, study through the last half of the book of Genesis on a little hiatus uh, for the next couple weeks because the Advent season is quickly uh, approaching. And uh, we have a a little four-week series that we're going to do for Advent. Uh, It's called Away in the Manger. It has the the markings of a a wonderful time. Uh, Pastor Paul and Lindsay have been working on uh, pulling together some just wonderful music. There's some real creative videos that are going to kind of kick off each one of the messages. And uh, there's going to be teachings from God's Word that focus on, on the themes of, of hope, faith, joy, and, and peace. You're going to have a, a, a different preacher each and every week. Uh, it's going to be the three mics and a Ben, basically. You're going to get uh, Mike Bongo, uh, Michael Stephen Leonza, that would be me, Michael Tyler Leonza, which will be my, my son, and then you're going to get... Uh, Mike uh, Bongo, which his real name was Bongarelli, right? From a long time ago, right? His grandfather came, or whoever came over, they were the Bongarellis, which I think is a better name than Bongo, personally, but you should go back to that, Mike, and I'll just shut up now and get on with the sermon, right? Because... <laughs> Sorry, I love you, buddy. So... Uh, we are, we're excited about that. Now, that brings us to this weekend. And so on the, on the preaching schedule, occasionally we uh, slide in a weekend where it's just kind of an open and you get to pick what you want. And so I'm the guy that was on for this weekend. And uh, I decided that we would uh, take a look at living a life that's worthy of Jesus's death. And, and let me explain to you uh, the rationale that I have for, for working down this path. Uh, it has been for, for quite some time that, that my spirit has just been, been troubled uh, with the increasing anger and strife and uh, division that, that permeates our culture. Uh, I just don't get it at times. I mean, we, we make like one or two steps forward and then we take a step backwards and then we go step forward and take two steps backwards and we just end up continuing to be divided amongst uh, race and socioeconomically and ideologically and politically and it just seems as if nobody can get along and it's gotten so bad that in my own life just to be able to make it through life I've had to make some changes in my life uh, I have had to disengage from from all forms of, of social media I just simply can't take it any longer uh, I don't know about you I struggle to watch the news I, I can put on the, on the television news for about five to ten minutes before I just have to I, I just have to shut it off I just can't take it uh, I rarely listen to talk radio. I, I used to like to listen to sports talk radio, but that has become so politicized. It's just frustrating to listen to that. Uh, I've given up on, on Penn Live simply because I'm cheap. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I, you know, I went out there and I clicked on one article and I got that. And I clicked on the second article, said, you need to pay $14.99 if you want to read, read this thing. I'm like, there is no way that I'm giving up two Jimmy John subs to read the Penn Live. <laughs> just not happening. 
And so I can get one news article from the Patriot News once, one, one time a day. So I have to be very, very careful about which one that I pick. I even struggle. I, I like NPR, but not even their soothing voices of NPR can, cannot placate me. It's just incredibly frustrating. And it seems like there's a litmus test for everything. You basically, if you're not in my camp, if you don't support my party, if you don't believe in my cause, if you don't see the things the way that I see them, then you're a horrible person whose opinion has absolutely no value, who's only worthy of ridicule, and, and who perhaps would be better off dead. You know, when, when there are certain polarizing political figures, whether they're, they're from the left or the right, when one of them dies, people actually celebrate. What, what has happened to us? But what's even more troubling to me is this attitude of division and ill will and mean-spiritedness. It has found its way into the church, the bride of Christ, the one for whom Jesus died, and the one which God had ordained to be uh, the very uh, voice and example of what it looks like to live in unity and love. You know, back when I used to regularly engage in social media, there were things posted by my Christian friends and my church family members, supposedly in the name of Jesus, that were so incredibly mean-spirited. They absolutely broke my heart. Over the years, I have heard and witnessed divisive and hurtful things that make me question, is anybody really listening to me or Mike Bongo, or Pastor Ben? Or are we just, just, you know, slaying windmills out there? Is anybody actually listening? I've received emails and telephone calls from people who are so incredibly critical of other Christians. People who they barely know, if at all, and I'm thinking to myself, really? That's really how you think? That's really how you behave? You're claiming the name of Christ? And you're saying those things? Or writing those things? Really? And through it all, I've wondered if anyone really understood the Apostle Paul's teaching to the Christians living in the ancient city of Colossae. Listen to what he says to them. He says, if you, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then, also, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. 
And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew. He could have slid in there, Republican and Democrat circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave. He could throw in male or female, free, but Christ is all and in all. And it continues, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint, Against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put, of, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. If you and I, if we claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we call ourselves Christians, that is what God expects from us. He expects us to discard anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. He expects us to, to embrace compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint with another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven us. You see, only when we do that, can we really live gospel-centered lives of Christian unity? Lives that, that don't divide based on ethnicity or economics or education or life experience or political party or ideology, but rather lives that unify under a common allegiance and love for God and love for others and love for the gospel and love for the word of God. That is what we are called to do. We are called by God to live lives that have been transformed by Jesus' supernatural holiness, not lives that are controlled by the world's natural sinfulness. We're not to, to, to go with the lowest common denominator. We're, we're not to succumb to all the, the garbage that is going on in, in our society and the way that people treat and mistreat people. That is not to be the people who claim the name of Christ. So how do we do this? How do we become people like that? How, how do we become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who care more about the gospel that brings people together than all the worldly passions that tear us apart? How can that be the important thing to us? How, would, how, how about we care more about what, what heaven says than, 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 than what Washington, D.C. says? How about we try that? God shows us how this works. He is very, very clear. In Philippians chapter two, which is one of my absolute favorite 
passages in all of the Bible. Uh, we get a glimpse of, of how we pull this off. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Philippians chapter two. Actually, we're gonna start in chapter one, verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles scattered around uh, the tables in the room. Fire up your, your Bible app, that's fine. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and own one, please take, take the Bible. They're, they're like Doritos, we can make more of them. All right, well, we can buy more of them, actually, I guess. Uh, but we want you to have a Bible, and if you are able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word, Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for his sake, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, I realize that, that I've just thrown you right into the book of Philippians. We, we haven't been studying it for, for weeks or anything like that. So uh, let me give you just a little bit of background uh, of what's happening here in, in this, this town and what this town is like. And let me give you a little background on what's going on in the Apostle Paul's life as, as he writes a letter to the folks living in this town of, of Philippi. You see, Philippi was a lot like Harrisburg. It wasn't a huge city. And it wasn't a small city. It's kind of like that third bed in Goldilocks, you know, the one that was just right. That's how Harrisburg is. It's just right. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's close to lots of wonderful places. You can get there, you know, New York City, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Pittsburgh. You can get there really quick. You can get to the beach pretty quickly. I mean, Harrisburg, it's just like the perfect place. 
And like Harrisburg, Philippi is, is also a, a major transportation hub, uh, for a hub of transportation and commerce. It, it was situated uh, along this main road that connected the, 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 the two sides of the Roman Empire. So if you're going to go from the, the western side of the Roman Empire to the eastern side of the Roman Empire, and you had to move spices or, or animals through there or whatever, you're going through the city of, of Philippi. Just how it is Harrisburg. Harrisburg is this major crossroads for the entire East Coast. Why do we have all these warehouses here? It's because it's the perfect place because all the trucks are coming through here. And as such, Philippi and Harrisburg become this melting pot of people from various ethnicities and economic statuses and life experiences and religious and political beliefs. I mean, you look around now. I live two miles from here. I've lived in our house for 19 years. When we first moved in, into our little block of the street, there, there was, there's probably 12, 14 houses on the block. And, and of those houses, uh, 12, of those, 12 of the 14 were Caucasian families. There were two African-American families. I, I'm now only one Caucasian family on my block. And if you watch the people walking down the block, I mean, there are people from all over the world wear all kinds of different clothes. There's, there's burkers, there's hijabs, uh, there, there's guys in flowing robes, all these people talking different languages. God has brought these people to us. This is not, this is not a, a problem. This is a great opportunity for the gospel. We used to have to go everywhere else to, to proclaim the gospel. Now the opportunity to proclaim the gospel is actually in our backyard. What a gift. Now the Apostle Paul in 49 AD, a mere 16 years after Jesus has been crucified, he travels to the city of Philippi. And there he establishes a Christian church. Gets the church rolling, he leaves about nine years later in 58 AD, he comes back for about two or three weeks just to make sure that everything is going smoothly and he leaves again. And then about four years later, 62 AD, Paul is rotting in a Roman prison and he writes this letter to the, the folks living in Philippi, to the Philippians. And it's a response to, to a gift that that church had sent him. They found out that he was in prison. Uh, they sent him some uh, emissaries, some friends along, and, and with certain gifts. And so he writes them a thank you letter, but it's more than just a thank you letter. It's designed to encourage them to live a Christ-centered, gospel-focused life that oozes with Christian love and unity. I mean, think about this. He is facing death. He knows he is not going to survive. But he's got time. And because he's got time, he's able to tell people the most important things of all. It, it would be like you or I getting, getting cancer and being told that, that we've got you know, six months to live. What are we going to do? We're going to spend six months paying Candy Crush on our phones? No, we're going we're to find the people who, who matter the most to us. We're going to tell them the things that matter the most. That's what we're going to do. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. And, and, and that's why we read in the very first part of Philippians uh, 1, it says this, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
He says, this is what I want you guys to do. I want you to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? What does a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean that you and I have to somehow live a life that makes us worthy of the gospel. That we have to do this, that, or the other thing to earn our salvation because it is impossible for us to earn our salvation. We can't be obedient enough to earn God's favor. We could do everything that was listed there in in Colossians. None of that is gonna earn us eternity. All of those things listed in Colossians are a byproduct of what Jesus has done for us. It's what we do in response to Jesus dying for us. Because our salvation is a gift from God that comes from Jesus alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us. Nothing. Jesus has done that work. We can appropriate God's love by placing our faith and trust in Jesus and confessing our sins. So Paul isn't telling the Philippians that somehow they have to live in a way that makes them worthy, and he's not telling us that either. But this is what he is ultimately saying. He's saying that how you and I live should demonstrate the incredible worth of the gospel. The phrase, be worthy of the gospel, it comes from a a, a Greek term that actually talks about citizenship. And the people in Philippi, they were like, super zealous about the Roman citizenship. Years earlier, uh, the Romans had had a battle in in and around their town, and their town became part of of Rome, and the people actually got made into Roman citizens, which gave them great benefits. There were many other regions that were controlled by Rome where the people weren't Roman citizens, but if you lived in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen, and with that came great, great benefits. And so what this could actually be translated is, this phrase could be behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Well, who are we citizens of? As those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have believed and, and, conf- and received, uh, confessed our sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're now citizens of heaven. And do we understand how incredibly valuable that is? We are God's representatives on this earth. How we live, what we say, how we interact with others, the way we spend our time, it should all point to how incredibly valuable the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Listen to Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. You see, God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I being his sons and daughters, 
is more valuable than gold. And when we live like sons and daughters of the king, when we keep his command, there is a great, a great reward. And not only do our lives thrive, but the lives of those with whom we interact thrive. Let me give you a little example about this. I have a, a, a friend who lives uh, here in the Harrisburg area, but owns some property in, in another state. And it's in a very rural area of this state. And, and when you come uh, from being an outsider to that area, they let you know that you're an outsider, that you do not fit into this community. And, and, and so he and his, his wife had been going down there, and uh, it's a, like a vacation place that, for a number of years. And they're just not making any inroads into the community. They can be as nice as pie, however nice pie is. Uh, they're, they can be as nice as you can be, but, but people are just ignoring them, pretend that they don't exist, all those kinds of things. And, and it's a really small community. There's one store. So uh, they're doing some remodeling to the house, and they need to get some plumbing supplies and, and things like that. So he goes down to this, you know, this general store, basically, and he buys all of, of this stuff, spends like a thousand bucks on stuff, probably more than these people have sold in a long time. And uh, he gets home, and he's doing an inventory of all the stuff, and, and he notices that he hasn't been charged for everything, that he got everything on his list, but they didn't charge him for everything. And so he could sit back and say, yes, I've won the lottery. But instead, no, he goes back down to that little country store and he goes up to, to the manager and says, hey, there's been a mistake with my bill. And the manager looks right through him. Like, how dare you question me? You know, you're just an outsider. You're trying to get stuff because she thinks what? That, that he paid the money, but he, he's saying he didn't get all the stuff. He says, oh, no, 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 ma'am, you don't understand. I didn't pay you enough. And he gives her like 200 bucks, whatever it was. And he was forever accepted in that community. Why? because he lived out his Christian faith. And not only was there a great reward for him, but there was a great reward for those who he interacted with. Can you imagine if you and I behaved in our community in such a way that we made the gospel look so incredibly beautiful? If, if we interacted with that neighbor who's been driving us crazy in a kind way, if in our workplace we were the absolute hardest worker in the workplace, where we, we tried to figure out how we could help other people, can you imagine how different things would be? Can you imagine if, if we, we actually stood up for the things that are really right and did it in a humble way? Can you imagine the changes that, that would happen here? You see, when you and I, when we realize how valuable our salvation is, when we come to grips with how beautiful God is, when we completely grasp the freedom that comes with actually obeying his commands, when we are overwhelmed with the great worth of the gospel, that we don't have to earn God's approval, but that Jesus earned it for us, we begin to live differently. 
all of a sudden we don't get caught up in the chaos of this world. We don't have to please some political party or some ideology. We don't have to fear being condemned for what we believe. We don't have to bend to gain the approval of others. Our lives don't get destroyed when the circumstances of the world don't go our way. Because, and when that happens, when we realize that, that we've got the most valuable thing in the world, it frees us to love others to encourage others, to forgive others, especially those who are different than us. It also frees us to experience suffering and loss and disappointment and not be crushed by it, while at the same time experiencing success and pleasure and gain and not becoming prideful, all because we realize we're not temporary citizens of this world, we're eternal citizens of the kingdom of God. Folks, this is all going to go away one day. The Bible tells us it's all going to burn. And whether we precede that burning or that burning comes while we're here, it doesn't matter. This is not our home. We need to care about it. We need to respect it. We need to, to be kind to people. But this is simply not our home. And we shouldn't live like, like this is all that we've got. But that's how many of us live. And all that other garbage of the world becomes so incredibly important. So how do we get to that place? How do we get to the point where we live our lives worthy of the gospel? Well, Paul gives us the, the answer in the second chapter of Philippians. Listen to what he says here in the very beginning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, it all starts. You want to make the gospel to be worthy, to show people how worthy it is? It begins with remembering. In the Old Testament, remembering was huge with the Jews. The Hebrew word for, for remember is zahar. And, and the, the Jews would say, zahar, zahar, zahar. Remember, remember, remember. When life was going poor for the ancient Jews, they were, ten, and they were tempted to despair. God sends prophets to them and to call them to remember how he's delivered them in the past. When things are going well and they're tempted with pride to, to abandon God, he sends those same prophets to, to tell them to remember how in the past their forefathers and foremothers had rebelled against him and how they were punished, yet God forgave them. See, remembering helps put things in perspective. Paul comes to them, to the Philippians, and he says, think back to a time when you were discouraged and you found encouragement from your faith. Think back to a time when, when you were hurting and you found comfort from Jesus' love. Think back to a time when you were weak and the Holy Spirit empowered you. Think back to a time when you alienated God because of your sin and God comes and shows you affection and mercy rather than the wrath that you and I deserve. You want to free yourself from the bondage of our culture's expectations you're tired about being discouraged by a world that's spinning out of control? Do you want to begin living a life that, that brings glory to God? The place to begin is take an inventory of what God has done in your life and mine. On Friday morning, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning. I, I haven't made the shift from the time change yet. And uh, I, I've been trying to 
uh, exercise more, more faithfully here. And so uh, about three times a week, I've been going to, to the gym. I typically go to a, a spin class on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 5.45 in the morning. And, and the gym that I go to, you, you, you got to book the class. And then if you, you don't go to the class that you've booked after a couple times, they shut down the ability to book stuff. So you got to be really careful to actually show up. But they also give you the opportunity that you can unbook, basically. And so I wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I'm like laying in bed. I'm like, I really don't want to go to this class. And, you know, I'm having this battle in my head. And finally I grab my phone and I, I press cancel. And I'm like, oh, that was not good. But I just canceled. So I'm thinking, well, let me do something positive with my life uh, rather than just lay here and look at the ceiling, you know, and listen to Kathy. Just She sleeps like a baby. And I get up like 20 times at night, basically, and... That's way too much information for you, I realize that. Uh, <laughs> rewind that, take that off the tape. But, uh, and so uh, I'm like, okay, let me take a shower and I got plenty of work to do on the message, so let me go into to work. And uh, so I, I roll into this place like 6.15, 6.30 in the morning or so. And, and this place is, is great in the morning when it's dark. And it's a big building, it's, it's quiet. You can't hear the trains running out there. You can't hear airplanes going by. You can't hear the beeping from the, the truck place because these walls are all filled with concrete. It's totally quiet. It's totally dark. And, and here in, this, in, in the worship room, it's, it's like pitch black in here. As a matter of fact, uh, Pastor James and uh, Pastor Paul and Harry's offices are, are behind the stage here. And so we were too cheap to put a light switch over here uh, so they don't have a way to turn the lights on when they need to make a room from here to there. And Patrick wants to make sure we keep the lights off at all times so we're not wasting money. And uh, so those guys were like getting hurt and filing workmen's comp claims because they were you know, falling over chairs. And so we put these little night lights uh, all around the room so they got a little pathway to go. And so I, I come in here and this room is only lit by those night lights. And, and I, I, I kneel down here and, and, and I'm praying and, and I, I'm thinking about the message and stuff like that. And, and I begin to say, you know, God, I just want to thank you for all of these things that you have done in my life. And I remembered how discouraged I was last year, how we were having staffing issues and how we were in the middle of the building program and, uh, you know, the water's just leaking into the building and... Uh, you know, I, I just was like so crazy discouraged last year. And I remembered how many of you encouraged me, how I got notes and, and letters and, and cards and, and stuff like that. And I'm just like, thank you, God, for using these folks to encourage me. And then I started thinking about it a little bit more. And I, I thought to myself, uh, you know, God, you have really helped me in the midst of my hurts. And it, it took me back uh, to October of 2014, my my. Wife Kathy's mom, uh, Donna, was in the final stages of breast cancer, and we were at a, an elder board meeting, and uh, Kathy was, was bringing her home from the doctor's appointment, and uh, she called in the middle of the elder board meeting, and she said, Mike, I don't think I'm going to be able to get mom out of the car. Uh, can you drive down to High Spire and meet us, and can you bring mom, you know, help me get mom into the car? And uh, I remember getting down there. And uh, my mom, my, well, they're my mom and dad. It's, you know, Kathy's parents, but really my parents too. Uh, they're devout Catholics. Uh, they love Jesus. 
You know, Catholics get a bad rap a lot of times and stuff like that, but I'm here to tell you, my, my in-laws, they are born-again Catholics. My mother-in-law and my father-in-law, they love Jesus. And uh, I can remember, I get down there, and Kathy had just pulled up in the van. And I remember the, the great privilege I have of, of, of picking up my mother-in-law, a lady who I really gave a hard time to early in our marriage uh, time because I'm this rabid evangelical Christian trying to straighten them out and stuff like that. And I remember how graceful she was to me. And, and I got to scoop my mother-in-law up in my arms and, and carry her into the house and lay her on the couch only to about two hours later have to call an ambulance and take her to the hospital and the next morning watch her die. And then I go, uh, you know, another two or three months later and find out, you know, Pastor Andrew dies. And man, I was, I was hurting back then. And I remember just how gracious God was and how he comforted me in my grief. And as I... I kneeled here and prayed. I remembered how, how weak and inadequate I, I felt over the years. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you guys always feel really great about yourselves and, and that, that you can slay the world. That's not the way that I feel about myself. There are many times I feel incredibly weak and inadequate. And I, and I remember, I'm like, God, you always come and you strengthen me. I sit in this chair, and, and, and Bongo will tell you the same thing, and I guarantee you Pastor Ben will tell you the same thing. I sit in this chair prior to preaching a message, and I think to myself, how in the world am I going to pull this off? How is that going to happen? I got nothing. I'm Mike Leonzo. And God comes through every time. I remember how many times I felt that I alienated from God and ashamed of my sin. And, and I, didn't, I didn't fall into sin. I went rushing headlong into sin. Any of you guys do that? I know I do that at times. I know I'm not supposed to do this. And I don't trip into it. I willingly choose to go down that path. God should hate me. And yet, he shows his incredible love and mercy to me. You know, it's hard to live a life that's worthy of the gospel when we're weighed down by discouragement, pain, weakness, and sin. And it's easy to give up and just want to conform to the world. Yet when we take the time to remember God's faithfulness in the past, he gives us strength for the future. We don't have to give up. We can keep pressing forward and, and, and showing people the beauty of this gospel. But remembering also serves as a motivation to move us forward. That's where the next couple of verses come in. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. After encouraging these people, after telling them to, to remember what God has, has done for them 
He gives them a glimpse of what it looks like to actually live worthy of the gospel. And notice it all has to do with unity. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and having the same mind. One of the ways that we demonstrate the great worth of the gospel is by living in unity with our Christian brothers and sisters. Now you've got to understand something. Unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that, 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 that we're all going to act the same way and think the same way and believe the exact same thing. Where is the excitement in that? I mean, if everybody was like me, you would come in here on your day off on Monday and there'd be 37 of us making sure all these chairs are in line. That's what we would be doing. That would be very boring. Instead, God has created us uniquely. He has given us vastly different gifts. And he causes us, calls us to rejoice in those differences. You see, what unity means is that we're all heading in the same direction, that we all have a common goal, that there is a set of core beliefs, not secondary beliefs, but core beliefs that we all hold on to. It means we share a common love for God and a love for others. It means we share a common passion for the gospel and an unwavering commitment and submission to God's word. We might have different ideas of how we're going to get there, but at least we're all moving in the same direction. And the only way that that happens is when you and I die to ourselves. You see, dying to ourselves means that our lives are defined by an uncommon sense of humility. Humility that puts others first. It doesn't mean that we, we stop caring about ourselves. Paul actually says, it's okay to care about yourselves. But what it does mean is this, that we care about others in such a way that it actually demands something from us, at times to our own peril. Let me give you an example of a fourth grade girl who figured that out. There's a nine-year-old kid, his name's Stevie. He's sitting at his desk in a classroom when suddenly there is a puddle between his feet and the front of his pants are wet. And he thinks his heart's going to stop because he cannot possibly imagine how this actually happened. It's never happened before. And he knows when the boys find out in his class, he'll never hear the end of it. And worse, when the girls find out, they'll never speak to him again as long as he lives. He thinks his heart's going to begin to stop. And so he, he puts his head down and he prays this prayer. He says, Dear God, this is an emergency. I need your help now. Not five minutes from now, because five minutes from now, I'm dead meat. And he looks up from his prayer, and here comes the teacher walking down the aisle, looking right at him. And he knows that he's been discovered. And as the teacher is walking towards him, there's a classmate named Susie, and she's carrying the class goldfish in a bowl. And Susie trips in front of the teacher and inexplicably dumps the bowl of water and the fish into Stevie's lap. Stevie pretends to be angry, but all the while he's saying to himself, Lord, you delivered in the midst of this emergency. 
Now all of a sudden, instead of being an object of ridicule, he's the object of sympathy. The teacher rushes him downstairs, gives him a pair of gym shorts until his pants dry out. The other children are on their hands and knees cleaning up around his desk. The sympathy is wonderful, but as life would have it, the ridicule that should have been his has now been transferred onto someone else, Susie. She tries to help, but all the kids tell her, you've done enough, you klutz. Get away from us. Finally, at the end of the day, as they're waiting for the bus, Stevie spies Susie, and he walks over to her, and he whispers to her, you did that on purpose, didn't you? And she whispers back and says, you know, I wet my pants once too. And I know that's a cute story, but it gives you a pretty good idea of what it means to consider others more significant than yourself. Now, how do you get to that point? How do you actually live your life putting others before yourself? Paul answers that question in the next couple of verses. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What I just read you there is what scholars believe was an ancient hymn that was not written by the Apostle Paul, but rather quoted by him. They believe that it was written shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, and that hymn circled its way through all of the Christian churches. And in this hymn, we find not only Jesus' actions, but we actually find the mindset behind why Jesus actually did the actions. And this is what Paul means when he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, this hymn gives us the inner motives of Jesus. It lets us see actually inside of God's mind. You see, Paul's purpose isn't to tell us what motiv- or to tell us ju- what tell us what motivated Jesus, but to help us actually embrace that which motivated him. So, what motivated Jesus? First thing is this. We'll go through these quickly. The first thing that motivates him is the fact that he is actually God. Jesus is God is what motivates him. Look again at verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is one of the most important statements in all of scripture. Because this statement unequivocally declares that Jesus is God. The Greek word that has been translated form here is the word morphe. And uh, what, what happens is, this, this is not a great translation. It's, it's the best English word that comes with it, form, is the best translation of, of morphe, pretty much, that you got to work with. But here's the issue. The term form usually has to talk about outside appearances. Like we say, that runner has great form. That you're looking at this runner, and, and, and from the appearance, you can see that they run really, really well. Well, there's actually a Greek word that that talks about appearance, and it's the word schema. It's where we get schematics from. If you're an electrician or electronics guy, you know what a a, a schematic is. And, And so he could have used the word schema here 
to say that Jesus was of the appearance of God. But he doesn't. He uses morphe. Morphe actually is, is the essence of something. The NIV actually translates it a little bit better. It says, who being in very nature God. It's kind of a clearer translation than the ESV. This is a strong statement. He's not just saying Jesus is God. Because that's a weak statement. There are lots of people who claim to be God. Let me take you on a little history journey. 1960s. There was a madman by the name of Charles Manson, who declared that he was God. And he took a bunch of his followers and he sent them up into the Hollywood Hills, the Sharon Tate's house, the actress, the, the wife of Roman Polanski at the time, and they murdered everybody. Not to be outdone, comes a guy by the name of Jim Jones in the, in the 1970s. He too declares he is God takes a bunch of followers down to South America and, and he has them poison themselves, 911 of them. 1990s, another guy comes along, claims to be God, David Koresh. In the end, he, he gets into a, a fight with the, the, the government. The FBI uh, basically assaults his compound. 75 of his followers die. You see, Paul coming along and saying that Jesus is God is not very helpful. So he takes it to a completely different level. Paul says Jesus is the morphe of God. He, he is saying that everything about Jesus, his essence, his characteristics, his substance, his very fullness is completely and utterly God. Now this is huge coming from Paul because Paul is a Jew. He's a monotheist. He believes in one God. He is surrounded by people who are polytheists, who believe in lots of different gods. And, and, and when you would say that Jesus is God, that the folks who, who would be Romans would be fine with that because uh, Caesar was considered a God. So it's no big deal. Caesar's a human, he's a God. Jesus is a human, he's a God. The, the, the uh, Egyptians would come along and they'd say, oh, I, can, I can roll with that because you know what? Pharaoh is a god amongst other gods. But the Paul, a human being god, is crazy. It's blasphemy. As a matter of fact, that's what gets Jesus crucified in the end. Why? Because they said that he claimed to be God. So here Paul is. He is a Jew of Jews. And he is declaring that Jesus is absolutely God in every way. All-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, eternal, creator of all things. So what in the world does that have to do with you and I living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me tell you, if Jesus is truly God, and we are really his children that's a pretty darn good place to be. That's a very positive thing for every one of us. Why do we need to aspire to anything else? If we're accepted by Jesus, who in the world do we need to impress? If we're protected by Jesus, who in the world do we actually need to fear? If we're loved by Jesus, who in the world do we actually have to woo? 
You see, because Jesus is fully and absolutely God, and because we're his children, we have nothing at all to lose. We can humble ourselves because there's nothing to lose. Nothing at all. We can put others first, we can serve, we can love, we can put our, ourselves out there in all kinds of ways and never, ever lose because we're his. Jesus could humble himself because he knew who he was. And the same is true for us. When we know who Jesus is and we know whose we are, we can do the same thing that Jesus did. And that brings me to the next motivation. I promise I'm moving quick here. Jesus, the other thing that motivates us is the fact that Jesus became man. Let me read this again to you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, although Jesus is fully God, just as God the Father is fully God and God the Spirit is fully God, Jesus doesn't pursue his rights as God. He didn't stay in the glory of heaven. Instead, he empties himself and he takes upon human flesh. You've got to be really careful with the word emptied right there. Remember, we were talking about that term morphe, uh, that, that though he was in the form of God, though he was the morphe of God, it is a, in, in this Greek uh, tense called the imperfect tense. What that means is it's a, a past condition that, that continues indefinitely to the future. In other words, Jesus didn't stop being God when he became man. Crazy important to understand that. Jesus di didn't set aside all of, the, all of the things, all of his attributes of God in order to become human. Rather, he just emptied himself of his rights as God. He became a no one. He became a servant. He remained fully God while also becoming fully man. Think about this. The all-powerful creator of the universe bows to wipe his disciples' feet, touches lepers, defends a woman caught in adultery. And I think the most amazing thing of all becomes the most helpless creature on the fullness of the earth, an infant child. He had to be fed by his mom. He soiled himself. Without Mary, Jesus would have never survived. That's how much the creator of the universe humbled himself. But he didn't become just a servant. He became a, sa a sacrifice by going to the cross. Now this had to happen. In order for Jesus to die, he had to be human. Because gods can't die. By very definition, God is eternal. God can't die. So he has to become human. But in order to pay for our sins, he has to be God. Why? Because our sins have been committed against the infinite God. And because our sins have been committed against an infinite God, that demands an infinite payment. You and I cannot pay an infinite payment. Most of us have trouble paying a visa bill. And here we sit back and like, oh yes, I can be good enough 
to earn my way into God's graces. Yeah, right. The bill that you get from God doesn't have like four zeros at the end or five zeros or six zeros or seven zeros. It has one symbol. It's the number eight turned sideways, which for anybody who did any math knows it's the symbol for infinity. That's the price that has to be paid for our sins because we offended an infinite God. And so only God dying an infinite death can do that for us. That's the only way. And what's the beauty of Jesus being fully human? It means he understands us. He understands our temptations, our fears, our desires to be in control. He knows how difficult it is for us to humble ourselves. And he knows what it's like to experience death. And he did all of that. He humbles himself. He leaves the glory of heaven, becomes human out of love for you and me. And we should respond the same way. We should become humble because Jesus was humble. We should give up our rights because Jesus gave up his rights. And that brings us to the last three verses. Listen to this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see Jesus understood that his humiliation would ultimately bring his exaltation. What was God the Father's reward to Jesus? He exalted Jesus. And what is God the Father's reward to you and I when we live lives of humility and gospel unity? He does the same thing. He doesn't exalt us. He exalts Jesus. When you and I live like Jesus, Jesus gets exalted. And one day, everyone, is going to bow before him. Donald Trump bows before Jesus. Mitch McConnell bows before Jesus. Nancy Pelosi bows before Jesus. Governor Wolf bows before Jesus. Jeff Bezos bows before Jesus. Elon Musk bows before Jesus. And so do you and I. And we can either bow before Jesus as his kids we can bow before Jesus as the objects of his wrath. What will we choose? We have been given a gift. Salvation is this glorious gift. You and I, we need to live lives that are worthy of the glory of that gift. Let me pray for us. Dear God, you are good. Thank you for this time that we could share together. Father, I pray for every person in this room. Uh, Lord, I know I'm a crazy Italian. I get that, God. Uh, but I love you and I love these folks. And Lord, I just wanna, I wanna live a life that is worthy of the death that you died for me. And I want these folks to be able to do the same thing. God, would you empower us to do that? Would you help us, Heavenly Father, through the strength of your spirit that lives inside all of those in this room who have confessed their sins and received you as Lord and Savior. Lord God, would you help us to love others? Would you help us, Heavenly Father, that when we are ridiculed and wounded and hurt, to forgive others? 
when one strikes us on the cheek, Heavenly Father, let us turn the other cheek. When someone steals our, our coat, let us give them uh, our, our cloak too, Heavenly Father. God, help us to be like your son. Because Lord, that's how the difference ultimately gets made. That's where the power of the church is. God, do that, please. Bless my friends now. Lord, we give you this final song as, uh, Lord, a sacrifice of love to you. And it's through your son's name we pray. Would you stand with us as we wrap up?